Welcome to Authors Are Rockstars, a podcast dedicated to YA lit and rock and music. I'm Allison. And I'm Michelle. And today on the show, we have Celine Busby, author of Blink Once, which was a very suspenseful read that I really loved. And she has a fascinating life story. You guys don't want to miss this interview. And oh, before we go, Romans, you rock. I have to say that at the top of the podcast because they are the best bookstore ever. Yeah, we got to sit down with Celine at Romans Bookstore in Pasadena and it was just such a fun time. We loved it. We love Romans, we love Celine, so let's get to the interview. We are chatting with Celine Busby, who has written many books for young readers, and her latest book, Blink Once, came out from Bloomsbury last fall. Thank you so much for being on the show, Celine. Thank you for having me. We're excited to talk to you today. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about what they can expect from this paranormal thriller, Blink Once? Well, it is a sort of a mystery. It starts in a hospital, and you meet a young man named West who wakes up in the hospital after an accident, and then you meet along with him the girl who's in the room next door, and the story sort of takes off from there, and the two of them start exploring some mysteries that they found in the hospital. It's been called, the genres are sort of all over the place for this book. It's been called paranormal, and a mystery, and a ghost story, and I like to leave it up to the readers to determine what genre it falls into after they read it. I agree with that, because it's the sort of thing where you almost don't want to talk too much about it, because it would spoil the plot. Yes. So it's like, just just <laughs> listeners, just read it. it it's something. It's something, and it's good. Yes. Go for it. it <laughs> well, tell us about how you researched all the medical information in this book. You mentioned in the acknowledgments that your mom is a nurse? Yes, she's actually a midwife and a nurse practitioner. And then my best friend is a physician's assistant, and my aunt is a nurse, and my other aunt is a nurse. So I'm fortunate in that I have a lot of medical expertise in my family and friend pool. So I was able to go to them and do some research that way. I also did do some interviews with people. I went through the Christopher Reeve Association and interviewed some people who had had spinal injuries, like West, the fictional character in the book, has had. And I also interviewed people who had trauma and experience with being in comas so that I could include that in the book as well. Oh, that sounds fascinating. It's great to be able to talk to people rather than just read it. Although I'm a librarian, I shouldn't say that, but <laughs> there's something about getting someone else's personal experience. Yeah, That's there amazing. was all kinds of information, especially from the former coma patient that I got that I would not have ever been able to invent on my own and wouldn't have probably gotten from literature because when you're interviewing someone about their own experience, they include all kinds of things that, you know, if they were writing it down, they may not even include that. Just little tidbits about hearing music or you know, things like that, that he was able to tell me that, that I was able to use in the book. Oh, that's fascinating. Well, the character of West, who is, you know, like you mentioned with the spinal injury and everything, he really drew me in his voice. It just seemed really authentic to me. Did you encounter any challenges with writing from a male perspective or did his voice just come really easily to you? His voice came easily to me, but when I got done writing the book and I gave it to my husband to read, he came to me and said, wow, this guy cries a lot. <laughs> for a dude. And I was like, oh, wow, okay, let me go back in and see if you're right. And I said, you know, if you woke up in a hospital and you were paralyzed, you'd cry a lot too. And my husband was like, I might cry once or twice, but you, this guy cries a lot. So I went back and did a search and yeah, I had him crying like I would cry, me, a female person. And I don't think that 
guys really do cry that much. So that was something that my husband noticed. So I had to take out about 15 instances of tears were running <laughs> down my face, you know. So that was different. And then my husband also pointed out that the first thing that he would think of is if he woke up paralyzed was, you know, is the stuff working from the waist down. Mm. And I noted that, but I did not actually put that in the book because I was like, I'm not going there. <laughs> So there were things that I, as a female, did not think about for my male character. Some of them I went back and fixed. Some of them, as I've just mentioned, I did not end up <laughs> including. But other than that, his voice did come easily to me. Because I feel like it's, it's actually really Olivia's story. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to tell it from the perspective of someone who was not Olivia, someone from the outside. And so I chose a male narrator to tell her story. And so from that direction, I feel like it was an easy write until I got the criticism of, you know, the crime. Too much crime. <laughs> Aww. Good to know. So all the aspiring writers are, that are listening to our podcast, when you write from a male perspective, be careful on the crying, okay? Dudes don't cry. <laughs> Aww. They See, cry, but true. maybe not 15 times <laughs> enough, maybe times. three times There you enough. go. There you go. So, okay. Cut it down be believable. There you go. <laughs> they cry, but nobody should know about it. So. <laughs> well, the story in Blink Lunch hinges on some pretty complex plotting that leads to a chilling twist. What was your strategy like for that? Did you outline carefully to make sure it all added up for the maximum impact? I actually did a lot of research on movies like The Others and The Sixth Sense and things, movies and stories that I thought had done well with a twist and where you weren't angry at the story and didn't go back and say, pick it apart and say, oh, this doesn't work or or something like that where, you know, things, if things don't fall into place just the right way with a twist, then it ruins the whole story. So I did have to very carefully plot it and include things early on in the book that wouldn't be spoilers and wouldn't be betrayed later on by the ending. So there was a lot of back and forth after that twist where I had to go back and, you know, layer things in and fix things so that it was done right. But I really respect now authors who are able to do, screenplay writers and authors who are able to do a twist and pull it off well because it's complicated writing. And I actually um, watched again the film Memento, mm -hmm. which is so complicated I still can't figure it out. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> another one where you're like, what happened there? <laughs> but now I have a new respect for writers and screenplay writers who can pull that stuff off. Well, you definitely pulled it off. Thank it was you. awesome. So in this book, Blink Once references the fact that West can only communicate by blinking. So once for yes and twice for no. So while reading this, I found myself blinking every time you described him blinking. And I would blink the number of times and I became very conscious of my blinking. Did you experience that while you were writing it or is that just me? <laughs> I can't say that I did experience that. What I did do though was because I was writing from the perspective of someone who was paralyzed from the chest down, I decided to try to experience what that would be like Ooh. momentarily because I was writing so much about it and I was thinking, well, what, what would it really be like if you woke up and you were paralyzed and you could only communicate by blinking? So I laid down on the bed one day and I set a timer for about 45 minutes and I tried to lay there as still as possible, but not fall asleep, mm -hmm. stay awake and just lay there. And it's interesting because your mind really just takes off and wanders and you start thinking all kinds of strange things. It's like when you're sitting at the dentist office or something and you're just sitting there and you have to stay still, but your mind continues to spiral out. So that was interesting for me to do that. Then now that's just a tiny exercise and he spends weeks in the hospital on this 
situation. So I tried to include some of that, at least in the book, where, you know, where your mind might go or where your dreams might go or your thoughts, how your mind might expand if your body is so, well, paralyzed, isolated. But the blinking, I don't think I really... Sorry, sorry, I apologize for that. I have, like, power of suggestion issues, I think. But yeah, Yeah. I was like, I'm I'm blinking this whole time. I have a friend who has a hard time reading any kind of book where somebody has something wrong with their teeth. Like, if somebody gets punched in the face and their teeth get broken, she'll stop reading the book because she's like, it bothers her teeth. Like, her teeth almost start hurting. She's like, she can't stop fixating on, like, if it says blood was pouring out of his mouth, she's like, I'm done with this book. So I think it's sometimes people really connect with the writing. And if you have a very visual imagination, sometimes it can be overpowering, just like seeing it on film. (laughs) Well, just to clarify, the blinking didn't bother me. It was just, I noticed. I was like, I am blinking now. I am blinking a lot. (laughs) The power of the blink. Yes. Right? And when your husband asks you a question, you're like, asparagus for dinner? Blink, blink. (laughs) Well, on your blog, you talked about working through an aspect of your book that your editor thought you should change and you wanted to keep it until you eventually agreed that it didn't work. Do you typically enjoy the revision process or do you prefer first drafts? I actually love revising. It's my favorite. I hate first drafts. First drafts to me are, they're just a mess. And at that point, when I've gotten done with it, I'm so close to the manuscript that I hate it. I think it's awful and it's a giant mistake and I just want to throw it away. So then after someone reads it and comes back to me with notes, it's like a proactive, you are doing something. Something and you are fixing and I love that feeling. It's like cleaning or something. So for me, probably coming from my history as an editor, I love revising and editing and I like it so much better than the first draft. Oh my God, I hate the first draft. I love getting notes from somebody and working on them. I was actually just going to ask you. So you started out as an editor with some of the big six publishers, um, which must have been an amazing experience. So how do you feel that has affected your life as a writer then? It probably has encouraged me to enjoy the editorial process more and appreciate that someone is reading my work and spending time with it and thinking about it and spending the time writing me a 10 or 15 page editorial letter because I know what that was like and you really do invest a lot in your authors and I would read a manuscript and really sit with it for a long time thoughtful editorial letters back to authors and the line editing process the whole process that you do with a manuscript when it turns into a book is such a huge time commitment and you really put your heart into it and so now being on the other side I appreciate those editors who work with me and have molded my career and one editor I've worked with at Bloomsbury, Melanie Checa, we've had a relationship for, oh God, 15 years, something like that. I think wow. I've known her longer than my husband. So there's a real bond that forms there. And I have a great appreciation for it, having been on both sides. It's truly a partnership. It's really interesting. Yes, yeah, it is. Did you always want to be a writer or were there other areas and ideas that you focused on and toyed out, your ideas that you toyed with? I wanted to be an editor when I graduated from school. I knew I wanted to work with books when I got out of college, and I was recruited by Random House from from school. So I had a job at Random House when I graduated, and I really loved working there and working with books, specifically middle grade and young adults. And it wasn't until I came up with a series idea when I worked at HarperCollins, and I took it to my boss. And this was something that we did a lot. We would generate ideas in-house for a series, and then we'd find an author and hook them up with it and, and publish that way. It's kind of like an in-house packaging. Yeah. So 
we had become as an editorial group a little bit of a packager at that point. And I took my boss an idea and I said, what if, what if we do this series of books? And she said, I love the idea and I think you should write it. And I said, oh, I'm not a writer. I couldn't do it. And she said, yeah, you are a writer. You're going to actually write one of these books. Wow. Huh? And I was like, well, I don't think I can. I was so doubtful. And thank God she was the person who said, yeah, you're writing this. So just do it. I'm getting you a contract. You're going to write this book. And she's like, it's your idea. It's great. You should write it. Stop selling your ideas to other people. And I thought, oh my God, she's totally right. So I was 25, 26 at that point. So it was good to have a mentor who came to me and said, stop selling your ideas to other people. Start writing them. And then after that, I did still sell a few ideas at my next job. (laughs) But I enjoy that aspect of it too. I love coming up with ideas and giving them to authors who I know will complete them the right way. And I still do that. Sometimes I'll come up with an idea and think, gosh, I wish so-and-so would write this book because they do it so well. But now I do save a few of the ideas for myself. Oh, that's amazing. Well, that's really inspirational. Like you said, a mentor. We all need Yes. You need, sometimes you do need somebody to say to you, hey, you can do this because Mm -hmm. I don't think I, I know that I never would have done it on my own if she hadn't done that for me. And then when I left New York publishing and went into magazine editing, there was a lot of writing involved and it was a lot of very fast writing because you're putting out something every month. Mm -hmm. And I was senior editor at Teen Magazine for a number of years. And that was also, you know, a lot of writing, a lot of writing. And with people, you know, my boss, editor-in-chief saying to me, you can do this. You can write these articles. Do it, do it, do it. And once you have somebody like that in your life telling you you can do it, then you can. At least for for me. Maybe not for everybody, but I needed that person to say to me, you can do this before I felt like I could do it. That is so cool. Well, tell us a little about your writing routine. Like, how do you structure your day? And what kind of things do you need to have on hand when you write? What's your writing environment like? (laughs) The one thing I need on hand to write is caffeine. Mm -hmm. So I have to have coffee every morning. And I live in Los Angeles, and so I need Pete's coffee from (laughs) up north to keep me caffeinated to write. So that's step one. And then I do need a quiet house. It's very hard for me to write with husband and kids, like running around, video games, movies, whatever. I really do need it quiet. I know a lot of authors who put together a soundtrack for their books, when they're, and they're like, oh, this is the music I was listening to when I was writing. I can't have that. I can't have any music. Zero music. I don't want any noise. I can't have any sound. I just need to get lost in my own thoughts and get lost in the world that I'm writing about to be able to do it right. So caffeine and quiet. Those caffeine are my two ingredients. <laughs> Very nice. Well, your memoir, The Year We Disappeared, is incredibly intense, to say the least. Could you tell our listeners a little bit about it in case they aren't familiar with it? Yes. It's co-written with my father. And I had actually, when I was working in publishing in New York, I'd gone to my dad and said, I think that you should write about your experiences as a police officer. So I thought he had a really amazing story to tell. And he kept saying to me, like I used to say to my mentor, I'm not a writer. I'm not a writer. I can't do it. And finally, when I was writing full-time, I went to him and said, why don't we do it together? Why don't we do a dual memoir? And so we ended up doing that and tells the story of my childhood and my dad's career as a police officer. When he was 36, he was shot by an assailant who was trying to kill him, but he survived. Because no one was arrested in his shooting, we were forced to go into hiding and we lived in hiding for five years actually after his shooting. So the memoir tells the story of the first year after his shooting and sort of covers from his perspective, the medical aspects of his recovery. And from my perspective, it covers the, what it's like to be nine years old and sort of live with police protection around the clock and then live in hiding for years afterwards. It's an incredible 
amazing story and so glad your dad survived. I mean, I just have to say that. That's wow. Thanks. Um, <laughs> I mean, obviously. And how did you stay grounded while you were revisiting this time in your life that must have been just unimaginably difficult? When we were working on the memoir together, it was interesting because things came out. I'm so glad that we wrote the book together. When we were working on it, I even said, if this never gets published, it doesn't matter to me because as long as we have our family history sort of written down mm. for generations to come, I think it'll be a good thing. It did end up you know, getting published, which is a bonus. But things came out that we didn't know about each other. And we went on a trip together, he and I, my dad and I, where we interviewed former cops that he had worked with and other people who were involved with his shooting. And I don't know many adult women who go on a road trip with their father. So for me, that was actually kind of the best thing to come out of the whole experience. And I mean, we've been on 48 hours and, you know, all these great things have come out of the memoir. But the one takeaway for me that is the most important is that I went on this road trip with my dad. We learned things about each other that we never would have known if we hadn't done this project. And for me, that's sort of the most important takeaway. Oh, wow. That's really cool. What was it like recording the audiobook? It was hard. <laughs> I have a new respect for people who do voice acting <laughs> because, you. and I have a friend who is a, a voice actor who does video games and he's the voice of a television channel. He's the person who does the interstitials. And I've always thought, oh man, he has the cushiest job. All he has to do is roll up in there and be like, next up on Bravo, you know? <laughs> and I thought he had the easiest job. And then I go into the studio and I said to him, do you have any advice for me? And he gave me a bunch of advice. And I'm like, whatever. I'm reading my own book. So easy, right? So I went into the studio and they hand me my book and I open it up and I start reading and I got like two words in before they're like stop let's roll back let's do that again you're not pronouncing your t's there's an s on that this is wrong and I was slurring (laughs) it was awful it was such a hard experience thank god the producer that they put me with was she was excellent and very patient with me and once she kept saying once we get going it'll be a lot easier it took many many days many many hours and there were lots of I guess they call it roll back when they would roll back Mm -hmm. to certain places and make me say things over and over and over again certain things I learned that I cannot pronounce it was almost impossible for me to say certain words (laughs) so that other people can understand them just the relentless reading even my own book and hearing my voice played back oh my god It was a really tough experience. I'm glad I did it because I have a new respect for people who do that for a living, but never again. Never again. No, if any book of mine is optioned for audio and they ask me to read it, it's a no. It's a straight no. People out there, you have to hire somebody, a professional. Well, I'm glad that you narrated your own memoir, though, because I mean, I think that must add to the experience for the listener, you know, really hearing you tell your own story. So that's very powerful. So good on you for (laughs) for doing it. I didn't think I was going to get through it, but thank (laughs) goodness for a good producer. Yeah, I was able to get through it. (laughs) Well, do you have a different approach for writing nonfiction versus when you write fiction? I do, which is that, you know, with the memoir, nonfiction, I had to be very careful that all the names and especially this, because there's legal cases pending against certain people in the book, we had to be very careful with all the facts being correct. With fiction, as I said earlier, even though I interviewed a bunch of people for the medical aspects of the book, I did put a disclaimer on the back that said, everything is not medically accurate because it's fiction. So I'm able to play with spin it. out wherever I want. Mm-hmm. I tried to keep it somewhat medically accurate, but as you guys know, there's some stuff that happens in that book that you're at the end, you're like, did that happen or did it not happen? And could that happen? Is that possible? So I enjoy fiction writing better because nobody can come to you and say, well, that's not right. Cause you can say, I made it up. It's fiction. <laughs> 
fiction. <laughs> Whereas with the nonfiction, you know, if anybody came to me and said, well, wait a second, that's not the name of your fourth grade teacher. You have no defense besides saying, I'm sorry, I forgot, or I screwed up. It's a mistake mm-hmm. if it's nonfiction. So I kind of prefer the fantasy world of fiction. It's easier. <laughs> well, so tell us about your next project. What are you working on? I'm working on a series for HarperCollins right now. It's young adult. It's horror. And it's Ooh. called The Incantation of Savannah Bell. It is gothic. It's set in Tennessee, where I used to live. And it's based on a legend or maybe not a legend, maybe history. The oldest recorded ghost story in the United States, the legend of the Bell Witch. So it's something that I used to be terrified by when I lived in Tennessee, which is, it's one of those things like Mary Worth or Candyman, where you look into a mirror Mm. and you say the name, the Bell Witch, three times and she comes out and grants you wishes, but with every wish, there's a price. So it tells the story of a 16 year old girl who falls on hard times and calls on the bell witch to get what she wants. Oh my goodness. Okay, is there a release date or, you know, ballpark release date for this yet? Yes, it's coming out, I think, June 2014. Oh, so, a year and a half. We are going to look forward to that. That mm-hmm. sounds it's creepy. deliciously scary. <laughs> awesome. Okay, well, we have a silly question for you before okay. we let you go. Since Michelle is from Wisconsin and I'm from California, we talk about regional accents a lot here on Authors Are Rockstars because <laughs> we kind of love our accents. Yeah, it's fun to play. So, um, I read on your website that you are, your family is from Maine and you went to high school there so you can do a mean down east accent. Can you share with the class? All right, let me see if I can do this. I can also do a really good southern accent. Oh, I any accent, Okay, here's what a Maine accent sounds like. Can I swear a little bit? Can I say Jesus? Go ahead. Or is that not okay? Because they always say this, they always say, Jesus, buddy. <laughs> I went on a lobster boat, threw down my traps, and, and I, did I get a hell of a lobster? You bet I did. That's my main accent. That's adorable. I went to high school with a guy who one time he came to school, he had gotten a new pickup truck for his birthday, and he came to school, and he said to my best friend and I, Jesus, but have you seen my new truck? It's charcoal gray, and it's all shiny. And my best friend and I were like, what did you just say? Because he had such a thick main accent that we were like, it's what? It's charcoal gray. We were like, it's honk? We kept making him say it. He didn't know that we were making fun of him. So mean of me. But anyways, and then my husband likes to say that once I've had two drinks, my southern accent comes out from living in Tennessee. So if I have two beers, then it's all, what are y'all doing? What's up? It's so good. And my husband's like, first of all, your voice sounds like Minnie Mouse. Secondly, who are you? I love it. That's awesome. Whenever I talk to my family, this is how I end up talking. Isn't it weird if you end up, if you're talking to people who have the accent, do you pick it back up? Oh, yeah. Because oh, yeah. that happens to me. I'll be around Southern people or I'll even be watching Nashville on TV. And I turn it off and I'm like, well, on this episode of Nashville, this happened. And my husband's like, who is this? I'm like, well, this one lady, well, wait a second. No, 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 no. That's not how I talk. No. So it's easy to slip back. I completely understand. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. And thank you for sharing your lovely accents. You're welcome. Thanks to Vromans for giving us that wonderful space to conduct the interview. And thanks to Celine for taking the time to sit down with us. It was so much fun playing with you with the accents today. Like, oh my gosh, yeah. <laughs> All right, well, we'll be back again soon with another Authors, Authors Are Rap Stars. Rap stars.